The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, December 28th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Meadowlark Lemon has died. The famous Harlem Globetrotter is gone, taken from this earth at the age of 82. Loved Meadowlark Lemon, one of those guys who, if you're listing, hey, who'd you go out with last night? Well, there was Dave, there was Chuck, there was Meadowlark, there was Steve. Meadowlark! Oh, Meadowlark Smathers? No, no. Meadowlark Goldfarb? No, actually, it was Meadowlark Lemon. It was just one of those. I know there are people now with those singular names, Prince, Madonna, Lady Gaga, not a singular name, but certainly unique. But those were retrofitted, right? Well, Prince Rogers Nelson, but he dropped the other part. Meadowlark, that was almost his real name, and that's the genius of the name. The guy was born Meadow Lemon, which would be like the third greatest name of all time, but he knew he was such a showman, he knew that if he changed the meadow to meadow lark, not a biome, not an ecosystem, but fauna perhaps found within said ecosystem, it would have even greater appeal. Now think about this. What if Savannah, a woman named Savannah, like Savannah Guthrie, the equivalent would be if if she changed her name to Savannah Monitor Guthrie, the Savannah Monitor, of course, a medium-sized species of lizard native to Africa, or Forrest, uh, former Green Bay Packer Forrest Gregg, Slate's own Forrest Wickman, a Star Wars fan, friend of the show, if they change their names to Forrest Raven Wickman. Forrest, it would have a little bit of appeal, but I really do think Meadowlark Lemon nailed it. On the show today, I spiel about an issue in American life that is terrorizing us. Spoiler alert, it is terrorism. But first, well, today there was a little bit of a nip in the air in the Northeast. Thank God, because I have not been nipping the nog how temperature and food consumption relate with Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. So the weather outside is frightful. That is a lie. The weather outside is just really balmy and pleasant. Depends on where you're listening to this, I mean. People listen in Australia. Weather's nice there, too. It's such nice weather that you can't help but be bummed out because of global warming. But also, it gets in the way not just of what we wear and how we feel, but what we eat, what we drink. You know, weather, to some extent, dictates consumption. But is that psychological? Even if it is psychological, does that make it illegitimate? Joining me now is Dan Pashman. He is the host of The Sporkful, a podcast put out by WNYC. Hello, Dan. Hey, Mike. So wintertime, there are a lot of foods associated with the holidays. Heavy foods, wintery foods, like eggnog. Right. Like? Giant hunks of meat. <laughs> like the big meat hunks. <laughs> right. Yes. The whole meat hunk family is well <laughs> represented in the holiday season. Um, the goose is getting fat. The goose is not getting thin that's for right. Christmas. Yes, and, I understand. And typically, we're getting fat also. People do tend to eat more. There is a, a strong feeling among many researchers that it also has to do with uh, an evolutionary uh, behavior towards what they sort of call chipmunking, like mm-hmm. you're kind of storing away calories to sustain you through the winter months that could be more desolate or where food could be harder to scavenge. Well, that seems extremely maladaptive. <laughs> There's a guy at the Massachusetts Medical School who's done research on this that they're piggybacked on some research at the University of Georgia that goes back to the 90s. Mm-hmm. And he showed that people are very sensitive also not only to temperature but to light. And as the days grow shorter and there's less light, people tend to not only seek more food but to eat faster. Oh, which so I, that, that, that could be another explanation for consumption, not just a strategy to chipmunk 
but some of us maybe give ourselves, I got eight minutes to eat, and in those eight minutes, you're getting more. That's right. And, make, and back in our caveman days, you weren't going to be doing a whole lot of foraging for food if you couldn't see where you were going. And so you had less time in each day to forage for food and to find food in shorter days. And so that would also explain, give an evolutionary explanation for why we might eat faster when there's less light. The cavemen never foresaw what modernity would be like. If they only knew, if they only knew how easy it would be to get food, they'd have done some things that set us up for, you know, a lean physique. Well, they did some things. They walked a lot. But does that also mean the body really does seek out heavy, heartier food, or we've just been conditioned to do that? Well, it's probably some of both. It's probably some that we evolved to store up calories in the winter, and it's some that we have come to associate this time of year with giant hunks of meat and eggnog. For instance, I'm planning a New Year's Day open house party at my house, and my first thought was like... Not open enough that you've invited me, Dan. Well, it's in the... That's so open. You're invited, Mike. All right. Very good. <laughs> so anyone within the sound of Dan's voice who can guilt him in person is yeah. invited. It, yeah. It's uh, it's a ways outside the city where I live. If you yeah. want to take a Long Island Railroad train for about an hour and a half, uh-huh. you, you can be there. Well, it depends. What are you serving? Funny you should ask. <laughs> I was going to serve, you know, my first thought was eggnog because every holiday season I love to make homemade eggnog. It's super easy. And it's, it's actually, if you just knew the ingredients of eggnog, it's comical. The whole drink is just heavy cream, raw eggs, a pound of sugar, and about a bottle of liquor. Huh. Just those four things. That, that's a drink. Yeah. That, that's a beverage. It shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. So I like to make it once a year in the holiday season, and I, it's decadent, and I love it. But I'm picturing myself in this New Year's Day open house. The kids are running in the backyard, playing in the remnants of the leaves, and they're on the swing set, and we're tossing the football around. It's not eggnog weather. Right. Are going to barbecue a pig? No. Are going to go luau? That would be awesome. The, the, the drink was my first concern, so I decided to instead go Bloody Mary, mm-hmm. which has citrus. And citrus, tart, acidic flavors, that is more associated with hot weather, right. summer. And there's science behind that, too. People tend to crave uh, tart, acidic flavors in drinks during the summer because those uh, cause you to salivate more, and they will moisten your otherwise dry hot mouth. And that's why lemonade and all those drinks, margaritas and mojitos in the summertime. So I'm going Bloody Mary, citrus on New Year's Day. What do you think of that? It seems smart. It seems like a fun nod to the weather we're experiencing. But I do wonder, this conversation seems a little like a, you know, 1932 conversation before people lived in the Sun Belt and people lived in Florida and before we were connected to parts of the world where it's warm on Christmas. So have you surveyed them? Have you talked to them? Do do people drink eggnog um, ironically if they live in Tucson? Like, how do they uh, deal with the fact that it is Christmas, but it's all so warm. That's a good question. I'll be honest, I have not surveyed those people in particular, but I did do an episode of the Sporkful podcast where I went to the Campbell's Soup Test Kitchen mm-hmm. and I asked them, I said, do your soup sales go up in the winter? And they said, yes. And I said, what about in hot climates? Do they also, you know, how does that affect you know, soup weather? Well, they right. don't really have soup weather. Right. And they said that the soup sales do also go up in the Sun Belt, not by quite as much as they go up in the cold areas, but they do go up, and they suspect their research suggests that it's because people just associate that time of year with 
soup weather. That it, it, it's cold somewhere. They turn on the weather channel and it's cold out. So you know Jim Cantore is standing in the blizzard. So they go get some Campbell's soup. <laughs> yeah, the Cantore <laughs> effect. All right. So I guess the corollary to all this is I hate when you go to a restaurant uh, in the summer and they have a soup of the day and it's gazpacho or cool cucumber soup. I don't mind if that's on the menu, but if that's the only choice, I'm like, you've abdicated your soup responsibility. You shouldn't do that. They foist it upon us. So... A, do you hate that? B, should restaurants, should people not entirely give in to how hot it is and, you know, upend their holiday menus 100%? No, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think that, that a nice soup is good almost any time of year. I mean, if it's 95 degrees out, maybe I don't want hot soup. But soup— Yankee bean. I'm not saying a bisque. It doesn't have to be cream-based. No, but— A nice— well, the, Pasta fazool. You know, it's funny. There's a misconception that liquor warms your body, but yeah. it doesn't. It actually cools the inside of your body because blood rushes to your uh, extremities and to your skin, mm-hmm. to your capillaries. But drinking hot things actually can warm your body from the inside. And so I would steer away from hot soup on extremely hot days. But I think if it's, you know, if it's 50 or 60 degrees and wherever you're celebrating New Year's and you want a nice bowl of soup, you should enjoy it. Sure, but what do you think about a restaurateur who this time of year, he's in the Northeast, he's like, we usually have a holiday menu or we usually put eggnog, but I can't do it because of the weather. Should they do it? I would kind of split the baby if I was running a restaurant. Mm-hmm. I would say we're still going to serve eggnog because some people are going to associate this time of year with this drink. They don't. They would never even cross their minds to have eggnog any other time of year. So we, we, need, we need to fill that need. But then I would throw a curveball. And I would do a Bloody Mary or, um, I mean, I think it would be almost sort of funny to have like mojitos with little umbrellas in them uh, on your Christmas Day menu and embrace the fact that it's unseasonably warm. Or if you live in a warm climate, you know, I, I do think if you run a restaurant in Tucson, I do think you should be taking that weather into account when you're planning a holiday menu. Dan Pashman splitting the baby, that baby being the Christ child, because we're not going to forget what this season is all about. Dan Pashman hosts the Sporkful podcast, which is produced by WNYC. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Mike. Take it easy. And now the spiel. Ha, Obama! One big story over this holiday weekend were the storms sweeping the middle of the country in the southwest. Missouri flooded, severe tornadoes in Dallas. The death toll mounted. More than three dozen weather-related deaths since the holiday travel season began just before Christmas. Actually, as of this taping, there were closer to four dozen dead. Or, another way to look at it, more than twice as many as have died at the hands of Muslim terrorists this year. In fact, since 2001... There have been about 50 Americans killed in the name of Islamic terrorism. If you count American aid workers and journalists killed abroad, that increases the total by five. Let's also note that the San Bernardino shootings, the Chattanooga Recruitment Center shooter, they were inspired by jihad. They were inspired loosely by ISIS, but they weren't directly inspired by ISIS. There's no evidence that ISIS aided them. ISIS is just the jihadi brand of the moment. So again, in one week, more Americans killed by weather than were killed all time by ISIS, defining killed by ISIS as broadly as we can. Now, of course, people are killed by weather all the time. That's called an accident. 
and ISIS murderers are scary and random and potentially even more lethal than what we've seen so far. Of course, ISIS adherents killed 130 in Paris, and they'd like to kill more. So Americans are right to be worried about being killed by ISIS. ISIS is a problem. ISIS is a blight. It's more than a little disconcerting that this band of murderers is sitting on top of oil fields. They have a robust kidnapping and extortion network. They have expressed a desire to kill Americans. But when it comes to actually killing Americans, they are but the tiniest of morbidity vectors. Remember last week when a woman plowed her car into a crowded Las Vegas sidewalk and the local police chief thought it necessary to proclaim, and as of now, we do not believe it to be an act of terrorism. I hope that's a comfort to the family of the Arizona woman who was killed. Listen, I want you to know the driver who purposefully killed your daughter. Yes, she was inspired by some sort of homicidal impulse, but that impulse was not Islamic in nature. So I hope that gives you some comfort. Anyway, I'm sort of falling into the trap of highlighting a statistically improbable death, that Las Vegas killing. I'm sure the week after that incident, every pedestrian who knew about it, who was walking along the Las Vegas Strip, had at least a fleeting thought of vulnerability. But that doesn't make the thought logical. Last year, an infinitesimally small number of auto fatalities were of the premeditated murder variety. Over 10,000 people were killed by drunk driving accidents. Yet I would doubt that very few pedestrians in Las Vegas or anywhere else thought to themselves, gee, I hope I don't get killed by a drunk driver today. Because a homicidal motorist who gets a lot of news attention seems random and scary and unpredictable. And we as a species hate unpredictability, which is logical to an extent. Yet how we perceive unpredictability is often askew. Because getting hit by a drunk driver is scarily unpredictable too. But I guess maybe something goes on in our brains where we say we've already priced that into the risk matrix of walking outside the house in the morning. We are bothered the most by unpredictability when it is extremely rare. A bolt out of the blue. A bolt out of the blue moon, as it were. Yet, when it is extremely rare, it also means it's the least likely to kill us. Now, if a person can promise to eliminate unpredictability, we flock to that person's ideas. And that is where my real criticism lies. I am not very upset about the misperception of risk or fear of the unusual. It's just part of human nature. It's when we use those frailties, those failings for political gain, though of course that's part of human nature too, isn't it? We're told that this, this presidential election is an election about safety. Here's Hugh Hewitt on Meet the Press. It's a national security election. The Republicans had a great debate. The day after Hewitt called it a national security election, I received an email from a conservative group, subject, Ha, Obama. And the link was to a story from Hot Air, the conservative site. Sorry, Obama. AP editors vote ISIS as top news story of 2015. Sorry, Obama. I have no problem with naming this the biggest story of 2015 now. I looked through the hot air archives. They didn't make a big deal when the AP named as the top story of 2014 police killings or when they named in 2012 the horrific massacre of 26 children at a Connecticut elementary school or in 2011 the killing of Osama bin Laden. A little more quiet on that. But in 2013, the AP was back out of the liberal media doghouse because 2013's biggest story was the glitch-plagued rollout of President Obama's health care overhaul. By the way, We have two years distance from that, the biggest story of 2013. Does that still seem like great news judgment to you? Anyway, naming ISIS, naming terrorism, the biggest news story of the year, that's fine. 
naming it the biggest issue in this election is completely wrong. Saying that this is a national security election, well, I guess that Republicans would like that to be the case. They say there is a big difference between what they're doing and what Obama is doing. So yeah, I understand and you understand how politics work. One party needs to distance itself from the other and to say, these, these are our distances. The Republicans say the problem is ISIS. ISIS can kill you. The Democrats won't make you safe. We can. Hillary Clinton is basically obligated to reply, no, I am strong and I can make you safe. She just can't argue with the premise. The president has tried to contextualize things. He has actually tried to say, we're not actually that unsafe. He has tried to say, here's all the territory we've gained from ISIS. Every time he tries that, it hurts him a great deal. But I could say it. I'm not running for office. ISIS is dangerous. ISIS is virulent and evil. And they have almost no effect whatsoever on the lives of Americans. They could wind up having some effect. But America is strong and resilient and has a robust military and a great intelligence apparatus. ISIS is not the least of our worries, but I would trade in terms of magnitude and intractability. I would trade the ISIS problem for global warming, real wages, the national debt, the cost of health care, hell, diabetes. If any of those were as easy to solve as ISIS, we'd actually be in a much better place. So my last idea is this. Let's just affix the word terrorism to those problems. The terrorism of global warming. The terrorism of wage stagnation. And then maybe we'll get people to pay attention. Maybe we'll get them to worry, to be a little bit terrified. Human nature being what it is. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi likes to dunk on the Washington generals using her nom de globe, Nightingale Tangelo. Executive producer Andy Bowers delighted crowds the world over as copper-tailed starling Clementine. The gist on our songbird citrus fruit generator, my favorite was the marsh warbler grapefruit. But now it is the last They Might Be Giants song of 2015. Oh, They Might Be Giants will go on. Just not in the form of Dial-A-Song debuting on this program. The Dial-A-Song number is 844-387-6962. In a few short days, they will take that answering machine, and I'm told they will smash it against the wall to preserve the artistic integrity of the project they have been doing all year, which is recording a song into their answering machine. I have not been told that, actually. But if you want to hear a debut They Might Be Giant song for the last time, in calendar year 2015, we bring it to you first on The Gist. Here's They Might Be Giants with Shapeshifter. I've got a big old problem. I've got a big old problem. I've got a big old problem. Shapeshifters all around.